Welcome to the TBE Richmond Podcast. I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. On this feed, you'll hear sermons, teachings, music, conversations with guests, and so much more from us here at Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia. Thanks for learning and growing with us. Many of you know, on Thursday, we started celebrating Pride Month. And Pride Month was originally established as a movement to protest, to protest bigotry against LGBTQIA plus people. Unfortunately, the need to continue protesting and fighting for equality continues. Those who identify as LGBTQIA plus still face persecution, both around the world and indeed here in the US. In recent months, state legislatures across the country have restricted access to gender-affirming health care, particularly for adolescents, even threatening in some cases to take children away from parents who believe their kids need gender-affirming care. Some states have censored learning and discussion around gender identity in public schools, restricted and even banned speech or performances that challenge gender norms, such as drag shows, prevented transgender athletes from participating in sports and limited the ability of transgender persons from updating gender information on official records, like birth certificates and driver's licenses, punished businesses that create safe spaces for members of the transgender community, allowed companies to withhold goods and services from transgender customers, and even rolled back non-discrimination laws and other protections, placing transgender people at risk for harassment and losing their jobs. There's no way to sugarcoat or spin what's going on here. True, our society has undergone a rapid transformation in the way we understand and relate to gender identity and expression. But even the most serious supporters of these legislative efforts acknowledge that they are intended to single out a particular group of people for their innate differences and treat them as a class of human beings distinct from the minority, from the majority. And since the principles of justice dictate that separate is inherently unequal, the effect of these legislative efforts is inherently harmful to those who identify as transgender or non-binary, as they relegate transgender or non-binary individuals to a legally lesser class of person, subject to rules and standards that we in the majority would never permit for ourselves. How would our Torah and tradition encourage us to think about these repressive acts? Today's Torah portion, Parshat Naso, begins and ends in ways that are obviously connected to the dominant narrative of the book of Numbers, namely the journey of the Israelites from Mount Sinai, where they've been encamped since the middle of the book of Exodus, to the border of the Promised Land, at which they will arrive by the end of this book. But the march to the Promised Land, or at least the story of it, is interrupted in our Torah portion to consider a collection of laws and anecdotes about people on the margins of Israelite society. From women who are accused without evidence of committing adultery, 
to individuals who defy communal norms to live as ascetics. The passage that serves as the pivot point in our Parsha's transition from the main narrative to issues of marginalized individuals is a strange and vague law dealing with an unspecified interpersonal offense. It can be found beginning with Numbers chapter 5, verse 5. The infinite spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the Israelites. If a man or a woman commits any of the human offenses, betraying the trust of the infinite, that person shall bear guilt. They shall confess the offense that they have committed, and they shall render back for their guilt the sum of its principal, and they shall add to it a fifth part of it, and give, back, give it back to the one they have wronged. And if the victim has no redeemer to whom restitution can be made for their guilt, what is repaid shall go to the infinite, that is, to the priest, in addition to the ram of atonement which, with which atonement is made for the offender. You don't have to be Rashi to identify the many difficulties of this passage, although, of course, Rashi does comment on the many difficulties of this passage. Most glaringly, it appears to be superfluous. The Torah has already detailed in numerous places the laws and legal processes related to various interpersonal offenses. So why do we need this one? What does it add? Compounding the difficulty is the fact that the particular offense at issue in this passage is not specified. Instead, the text uses the phrase, mikol chatot ha'adam, any of the human offenses which is both unclear and unusual. In fact, as the contemporary biblical scholar Robert Alter points out, that phrase appears nowhere else in the Torah. So what kind of offenses, specifically, are human offenses? And for that matter, which are not? From context, it would appear that the crime in question is some kind of theft. The phrase limol ma'al, to betray trust or to break faith, is commonly used to refer to the wrongful use of someone else's property. Similarly, the penalty, financial restitution plus a 20% fine, is a common punishment in the Torah for certain forms of theft. But if this passage is about theft, we again run back into the first difficulty, which is that the Torah is already detailed. In other places, laws and legal processes related to various forms of theft. Why do we need this passage too? And why is the theft in this situation specifically called a human offense? Especially given the fact that the text asserts that this act betrays God's trust. If it's a human offense, what's God got to do with it anyway? Many of the classical commentators see a clue to solving the puzzle toward the end of the passage, where the idea of the goel, or redeemer, is introduced. A goel is a blood relative 
who seeks justice on behalf of a, de of a deceased family member. So for example, if I steal something from you, and you die before I have a chance to repay you, then your next of kin, your goel, can seek restitution on your behalf. But what if someone, what if I stole from someone who had no next of kin? It's precisely this scenario that seems to concern our Parsha. So what kind of person has no next of kin? In several places, the Torah asserts that the individuals most likely to be in such a situation are Gerim, Yetomim, and Amanot, strangers, orphans, and widows. That orphans and widows would be presumed to have no kin is self-evident. But what about the Ger, stranger? In the Torah, the term Ger refers to a specific kind of stranger, an immigrant. A Ger is a non-Israelite who has left their homeland to seek out a new life in a foreign country, in Israelite sovereign territory. Even in the best of circumstances, even in a case that does not involve enduring great expense or grave danger, as immigration often does, and even when a person freely chooses to emigrate, a choice not available to the vast majority of immigrants, especially children, even in the best of circumstances, being an immigrant is really tough. Immigrants have to learn the laws, customs, and often the language of a foreign country. That learning curve can be really steep, depending on where you come from and where you've resettled. And immigrants often have to navigate all of these challenges without the benefit of a close network of relationships in their adopted country something that most other people, except of course for orphans and widows, inherently have, but often take for granted in family. Therefore, the Torah considers immigrants to be uniquely disadvantaged, just like widows and orphans. Interestingly, however, the Torah goes out of its way to single out immigrants for special protection far and away more than any other group, even orphans and widows. Why? Perhaps it's because for all their vulnerability, Israelite orphans and widows at least enjoy the benefit of being insiders in their society. True, they may not have family to rely on, but, and like immigrants, orphans and widows did not choose their underprivileged condition. But as native-born Israelites, they at least in principle enjoy the privileges of citizenship and the protective support network of their fellow citizens. And they're naturally more at home, navigating a society where, at the very least, the laws, customs, and language are not foreign to them. Immigrants, on the other hand, are all too often seen and treated by the native population as outsiders. Their differences, which they did not choose, and that they cannot easily or completely change, if it were even fair to ask them to do so, which it's not, are often visible to the naked eye if not betrayed by their facility with the local language or knowledge of local law and custom. They are therefore easy targets for exploitation and abuse. This reality is especially pronounced because it's naturally more tempting to wrong someone like an immigrant who doesn't have the protective support network of local kin or fellow citizens. The risk of being held accountable is much lower. 
For proof, look no further than the fact that, despite what some contemporary politicians say, immigrants to this country are still far more likely to be victims of crime than perpetrators of it. One of the core messages of Torah, however, is that from God's perspective, there's no such thing as natives and foreigners, insiders and outsiders. As the prophet Amos famously said, To me, O Israelites, you are just like the Ethiopians, declares the infinite. All human beings, in other words, are God's, equally God's children. All are loved by their divine parent with the exact same love. Therefore, categories like native and foreigner, insider and outsider, are at best benign legal fictions that we invent to satisfy our human need to impose order on our environment. But they can also be dangerous distortions, leading us to erroneously believe that there's some fundamental distinction and therefore hierarchy between natives and foreigners, insiders and outsiders. Therefore, when a member of a dominant group abuses its inherent social advantage by targeting and exploiting people who are identifiably different in ways they did not choose and which they cannot change, and who, because they can be readily characterized as outsiders, are inherently vulnerable, it's not only a crime against those individuals, it's an assault on their very humanity. Many of the classical commentators argue that even though it's not stated explicitly, this passage from our parsha is about harming a ger. This, they contend, explains the very unusual phrase, chatat ha'adam. Abusing an immigrant is not just a chet, an average run-of-the-mill sin. Rather, it's a chatat adam, a human sin, or to put it another way, it is a crime against humanity. For it's, in essence, a denial of the victim's fundamental equal human right to life, liberty, and security, regardless of their real or perceived differences from the dominant group. To target and treat any person as an outsider is a crime against humanity. And moreover, diminishing someone else's humanity is an act of breaking faith with God a betrayal of the one who has created all human beings equally in the divine image. From the Torah's perspective, then, laws that target transgender and non-binary people for their innate differences, differences they did not choose, which they cannot change, and that make them inherently vulnerable, laws that systematically treat transgender and non-binary people as a separate and unequal class of human beings are crimes against humanity. Restricting access to gender-affirming health care does not just harm individuals who may be in need of that care. It's an assault on the humanity of everyone who identifies as transgender, communicating that they are less fully human than the dominant group, whose health care is not similarly restricted. Forbidding teachers from talking about non-traditional understandings of gender identity doesn't just harm individuals in those classrooms who may identify in non-traditional ways. It's an assault on the very humanity of anyone who might identify in non-traditional ways, suggesting that they are less fully human than those who are free to express their own more conventional gender identities. 
The same is true of preventing athletes from participating in sports or updating official records or using bathrooms in ways that align with their gender identities or of uh, permitting businesses to discriminate against transgender employees or customers. These efforts not only victimize individuals, they are crimes against the very humanity of all transgender and non-binary people. Reinforcing an atmosphere in which those who can't do those activities without restriction or discrimination are made to feel less fully human. Given what's happening in states all across our country, it's, is it any wonder that transgender and non-binary kids in the U.S. face elevated risk for depression, thoughts of suicide, and attempting suicide compared with youth who are cisgender, straight, including even cisgender members of the LGBTQ community. As a matter of fact, transgender and non-binary youth in the U.S. are two to two and a half times more as likely to experience depressive symptoms, seriously consider suicide, and attempt suicide compared to their cisgender LGBTQ peers, LGBTQ peers, who are already four times more likely than those who identify as cisgender and heterosexual. In our society, those who identify as transgender or non-binary are too often made to see themselves as worth less than cisgender people. According to our tradition, this is a crime against humanity and therefore a betrayal of the one who has created all human beings equally in the divine image. It's telling that our Parsha only returns to its main story, the Israelites' inexorable march toward the Promised Land. Once we have seen, considered, and understood the experiences of those who are not part of the dominant group, so too we must know that in our time we cannot move forward toward a perfected world when some are seen and treated as outsiders. The only way to make it to the Promised Land is together in a community where there is no such thing as outsiders and insiders, but rather where the equal and infinite dignity of every human being is affirmed and secured. As we begin Pride Month, a season for seeing, affirming, and celebrating everyone in our community, including and especially those who identify as LGBTQIA+. Let us recommit ourselves to keeping faith with God and with each other in these ways, so that together we can and will make it to the promised land. Happy Pride. Shabbat Shalom. This has been the TBE Richmond Podcast. Once again, I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. On behalf of all of us here at Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia, thanks for listening. I hope this episode was uplifting and enriching. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And please rate and review us so others will have an easier time joining the conversation. Our theme music is composed and produced by Stephen Frost. Learn more about our dynamic, warm, and passionate congregation affiliated with the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism at www.bethelrichmond.org. Until next time, shalom y'all.